My name is Josh Reynolds, and I'm always thrilled to be invited back. Always surprised, but thrilled. And uh, so a little bit of soundbite of who I am, where I come from. Uh, the year was, let's get this one right. The year was 2004, August 8th, and Laura and I said I do to one another. And then the year was 2004, August 11th, and we said hello to our classes down in Houston, Texas. My wife and I got married in Connor Prairie, Indianapolis, and three days later, uh, students would leave Mrs. Reynolds' science room and come around the corner to Mr. Reynolds' English class in the same school. And over those three days, I began to reveal the less-than-Christ-like behaviors that I had hidden uh, through the dating relationship, but now we were married so I could let all my skeletons out of the closet. Uh, <laughs> She has stuck with me for 14 years and was at the first service, and I have been in a habit of saying, please forgive me ever since. And I never thought that I would be a school teacher, uh, never thought I would be a pastor staying up here like this. Uh, in fact, I was quitting college my sophomore year uh, from Purdue University to go down to Mexico, learn how to pronounce Russia, and build homes. And I called my dad to let him in on the plan. And my dad was a pastor and a school teacher, which is why I would never be one of those. And, uh, and he said, that's great, son. I said, Dad, I'm quitting school. He said, that's great, son. Did God call you? And that, that gentle phrase, that's great, was so affirming that I could uh, do whatever I wanted because I was a man, right? I was a man. But then he said this as a pastor and a caring father. He said, did God call you? Basically, what he meant was, was that I could and I would hear God. Like, like implicit in did God call you was God would speak. And then it was my responsibility to hear him, to answer him, and then to choose whether I would worship him with my obedience. And so that, that philosophy of did God call you, it began to shape my life. And it's actually how the girls club and I got down to Bloomington so, uh, like I said, Laura's 15, 14 years with me, and I'm earning my haircut. And basically, anytime the, 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 the drain is clogged, I just be like, it's not me, you know. <laughs> Substore to that one is this morning I get a text at 6.14 a.m. Uh, from a friend of mine named John Robertson, and he said, preach like your hair's on fire. And I'm like, is that a bald joke? I don't like it. So anyhow, we came down to Bloomington to uh, help lead a ministry called Christian Student Fellowship. We're getting ready to start, oh, getting ready to start our seventh year this fall. And uh, this is why I bring that up, because Sherwood Oaks Christian Church, from the time it was Walnut Street Christian Church, has supported Christian Student Fellowship. So does anybody actually know what I mean when I say Walnut Street Christian Church? Yeah, there's lots of us out there. That's a legacy, right? You know, the, you know what it's like to spend and to, and to care for and to love the neighbors among you, which is the series that we're at, Love Thy Neighbor. And so uh, Christian Student Fellowship, or CSF, has been on campus for 50 years, and so we're attempting to do that well. So thank you for your care for our ministry. And so let's jump into it. We're in John chapter 1 today. Uh, verses 40 through 42. We'll throw them up behind us. And so they sound like this. 
Andrew, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, parenthetically, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. John texts me about four weeks ago and says, Josh, you free to preach on the 24th of June? I said, absolutely. Anytime you ask me, I'm going to say yes and rearrange my schedule. I love being here. And then he said, here's your passage. And I was like, 65 minutes on these three verses? How the heck? That's going to take some absolute skill, but I think I can do it. So buckle up. We're going to go fast and furious. Oh, P.S. If moving and talking fast, like that's normal. You can ask any of the college kids. And then I'm going to stop at regular points and you're going to talk. And here comes the first one. When I got these three verses, I went outside, I read it to myself, and then I just started asking this text questions. So I'll drink some coffee. You guys look at this text and turn to someone beside you and say, what questions pop up when I read this text? Andrew, Simon, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find him, his brother Simon, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, parenthetically, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. What questions do you guys have, or could you ask this text? We'll turn on some background music. I'll take a break. All right, all right, all right. As one of my friends named Matt likes to say. So the question here is, what questions would you ask? First question? Okay, who are the two? You're right. We know one's Andrew. Who's the other guy? Who's the faceless? I like it. Where were they? Where, where were they? Right, exactly. He went to find his brother. Where the crap was that guy? Okay, questions? Yeah? Yeah. What did John say? When he what? When he, like, he pointed at him and said, uh, John said something in order to get the other two to follow. I like that. Yeah. Why would Peter believe anything his, his brother said? I love that. I want to answer it with you. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll jump right into the teaching, yeah? God, we come to your text. We come to your story, uh, hopefully full of life and energy. And God, I, I pray that you continue to provoke questions in us that cause us to seek you. And God, I pray that you show yourself and we find you. And in that, we find ourselves. Amen. It's a good prayer, y'all. All right, here we go. There's two Johns to be aware of. Three contexts. Two Johns, three contexts. The first John is the writer of the book of, which is what we're reading from today. And here's why that's important. Because the writer John of the book of John inserts himself as a commentator into his own stories. He's not writing a direct historical narrative even though that's what we're going to go back and read through today. The reason I say that is because we have our parentheses. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, he knows that his intended audience is not Jewish. Because if he had said Messiah to a Jewish audience, he wouldn't have to say, that is the Christ. P.S. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title that you could then find in the word Messiah. That's the first thing. 
Think of John as a commentator of, what he's, of the story he's telling. Let's go backwards a few verses to chapter 1, verse 19. Look at this. The writer John says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. <clears throat> he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I'm not the Messiah, they asked him. Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. We just found our second John. John is introducing John, the cousin of Jesus. John, uh, who would baptize Jesus. John, who had a killer beard and a furry dress coat and munched on insects in the desert. That is a hot mess, if some of you know what I mean. Hot enough mess that the Jewish people would send out the leaders of their religion. They would send out the teachers, the priests, the Pharisees to ask John a question. And the question was, who are you? When you look at the story told throughout the book of John, that same question is asked by those same men of Jesus in John chapter 8. The teachers, the priests, and the Pharisees would come to Jesus and they would ask this singular question, what? Who are you? And so John does not fail to confess I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. In fact, if you keep reading it, we've clipped it for time. He even says, I'm not the capital P prophet. But he does say this, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? <laughs> That's not really love your neighbor language, right? We're getting to that point. John does answer. John the Baptist answers those men coming out to the wilderness. He said, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness Make straight the way of the Lord. But then he adds on something very important. He says, among you stands one you do not know, and the sandals of that one I am not worthy to untie. I'm going to go deep a little bit right here, right now. Ready? The priests, the Pharisees, and the Levites, when they asked Jesus that same question, when they ask John that same question, they're getting at something, which is the way that John is living out in the desert and the way that Jesus lives in John chapter 8. The way that John activates his power, which is by baptizing and preaching in the wilderness, which is exactly how Jesus then preaches and teaches and heals in John chapter 8. The reason they are asking that is because they were looking for a Messiah that is the Christ and that Messiah was going to be a revolutionary. The Messiah was coming to overthrow a government. They wanted the priests, the Levites, and the Pharisees, they wanted the Messiah to come and to overthrow the oppressive power of Rome. And so here's what happens. They asked John the Baptist the question, are you the Messiah? He says, I'm not. They asked Jesus in John chapter 8 the question, who are you? Because they were looking for someone with power. And what John the Baptist do, does and what Jesus will do is they will give away power. I'll show you this. In the words that John the Baptist uses when he answers, one among you stands one that you do not know. He's saying that's Jesus the Messiah. He is here and it's not me. The second thing he says is, I'm not worthy to untie the one who stands among you. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This is an incredibly important point because the men who are coming out are priests, Levites, and Pharisees. And the ultimate of those three levels is to become a rabbi. 
Someone who so intimately knows the law and can teach it and question it in such a way that these men all desired to become a rabbi. And so what you would have to do to become a rabbi is to become a rabbi's disciple. And in this day and age, a rabbi's disciple who would be a priest, Levite, or Pharisee must be willing to do anything a slave would do for his rabbi except one thing, to bend down and to untie the sandals of a rabbi, because in doing so, you would devalue yourself to a lower position than a slave. And what John the Baptist says is someone is coming among, he is already here among you, and I am not even worthy to stoop and untie his sandals. What John the Baptist is saying is a metaphor of extreme humility. It is a metaphor of extreme love and selflessness. And John the Baptist says, that person, I will take the place, and I'm not even worthy to do the sandal activity there. So, so humble. Authentic love will willingly lose its own status. It will willingly give away power. And this is the thing that we're going to see in this story, that authentic love also empowers other people. It teaches how to be whole, how to move towards health. John the Baptist is known for being a human highlight show in the desert. But what he has also been doing along with his fireworks is he has a group of listening learners that has been living with him out in the desert. I'm going to prove this to you. He has been entrusted with a prophecy, which is to make, way, make straight the way of the Lord, right? That's his role out there in the desert. Here's what happened, rewind, to Mark chapter 1, six weeks earlier from the part of the story we're reading right now. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You can make the noise at that point if you want. Oh, yeah, good. And a voice came down from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, at once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Could you punch that so we can see it, Jace? Thanks. Um, here's, the, here's the aha for me. I'm at the John the Baptist moment, and I have just done this thing where I baptize Jesus, my cousin, and I bring him out of the water. The sky is torn open, according to Mark 1. The noise happens. Go ahead. Perfect. And a, and a spirit comes down. And then there's this voice from that point that says, this is my son whom I love. But did you catch what happens next? At once, the spirit sent him out into the desert. Now, I don't, really, don't want to handle that portion of it right now. What I want to handle is the John the Baptist portion. You've just done this. You've just heard the noise. Yeah. What do you do for the next 40 days? Why don't you talk about it? What do you do for the next 40 days? With yourself, not with me. Do I need to turn on background music to cue you all? Okay, go ahead. Background music, go. Oh, I'll get the mic back. What? What do you do for 40 days? While Jesus is gone, you've baptized him and we've heard the noise. What do you do? 
Okay, so do you go out into the wilderness and follow Jesus a little bit? Do you wander? New thoughts? Right, guys, we got to think about Scripture. We can't just gobble it up and be like, That's, thus saith the Lord. That's going to be a teaching point here in a little bit. Like, we got to process this stuff and find ourselves in this story. What the heck would you do for six weeks if you just had this moment? I'll tell you what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist stayed true to his calling, which was to preach repentance and baptize for the forgiveness of sin and teach the men who were with him in the desert. We can know that is the part because as soon as we jump back to John chapter 1, verse 29, we see this. John saw Jesus coming towards him after 40 days of silence and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said. What has John been doing for six weeks? He has been teaching nonstop about this Messiah, the Christ. And John the Baptist knows because he baptized him. He's been living his life amongst other people and pointing towards Jesus. And here we are at verse 29 where he says, there he is. There he is. Look at what John the Baptist calls Jesus. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. This is incredibly valuable because chronologically when this happens in the calendar, this happens right before the Feast of the Passover, and if I preach on the Feast of the Passover, I truly will go 65 minutes. So that's not the game here. Read it for yourself, Exodus 12. What would happen is uh, the slaves of Egypt, uh, God's people were slaves. And so the angel of death was coming over. And anyone who did not have the sacrificial lamb's blood on their doorpost, the angel of death would come in and kill the firstborn son. And so this lamb of God imagery is incredibly powerful. Because of the time in the calendar year, it's about to be Passover where all Jews celebrate this thing. And so John says, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Who delivers, which is the whole point of Exodus 12. But there's something else you see in here. Sin is singular. Christ's work on the cross as the Lamb of God delivered from sin, the brokenness. And y'all, we all carry that. So we think there's a plurality of sin, but there's a penalty that comes with sin that Christ covers, that he delivers from. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then all of a sudden you start to say, okay, I, I've heard that before. What could be victorious about that sacrifice? Well, that's Exodus 12 at the beginning of the, of the Bible. What happens in Revelation 5? The Lamb of God comes back as a victorious warrior. It's the end of the times. It's eschatology, a study of how the, the whole world ends. And it's Christ coming back as a lamb, victoriously taking the world's sin and restoring it to wholeness. Again and again and again, we hear this reality of what love truly looks like. It's deferring power in death but it's also restoring and redeeming towards health and wholeness. Back to the story, chapter one, verse 35. When John the Baptist sees Jesus a second day in a row, 
no doubt, the people who he was around, he points again and says, look, the Lamb of God. And this is where we get our first point from earlier today. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Verse 37 is so valuable to you and I in understanding what love does. Love takes a, a humble place. It gives up its status. It, it teaches and empowers someone towards health and wholeness. But what true love does is it not only points you towards health and wholeness, not from a self-help way, but to a redeemer restorer in the person of Jesus. That's true love. And in a series called Love Your Neighbor, we better understand what true love looks like and feels like because John the Baptist points to Jesus at a great cost to himself. John the Baptist loses two disciples, my young friends. He loses his at least six weeks, if not years, of walking alongside this community of men, men that he has taught, that he has loved, that he has cared for, that he has preached to. And here's the best news, men that would carry his legacy forward. I didn't say legacy flippantly because John the Baptist willingly gave up his legacy by pointing people towards where they can be saved in the person of Jesus at a great cost to himself. Um, let's get to 37, 38 here. When two disciples heard John the Baptist say this, look, the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? He might not have said it like that. He might have been like, what do you want? I don't know. It can be, what do you want? I don't know how he said it, but this is where y'all get to talk. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of two disciples who have been learning from John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist points and says, yeah, Lamb of God, second day in a row, I told you about him. And they turn and follow Jesus. And then Jesus turns around and looks at you. You're a disciple now. Put yourself in those soggy sandals and answer Jesus' question. Background music will come. That's your cue. And you guys talk about how you would answer Jesus' question what do you want? Ready? Okay. Alrighty. Let's get like two or three of us. How would we answer the question? I want salvation. Save me now. Take me now, Jesus. All right, I like it. Oh, right? Maybe one of those. I want to learn from you. Can I follow you? I like that. Yeah, similar answers. All right, I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. When I heard Jesus say, what do you want? I heard my dad's own question. Affirming and gentle and an invitation for me to go deeper and check my own motivation. Josh, did God call you? You can hear him. You can answer him. You can worship him with your obedience. When Jesus says, what do you want? I hear that same motivational question. And, the, and, and here's the answer that the disciples give. They say, where are you staying? 
So they took his question and they answered it with another question. And so where are you staying has a ton of content and will actually get us back to our starting point, believe it or not. We're still not preaching on our topic yet. Sorry, this is the intro. (laughs) When they say, where are you staying? That's the language of intimacy, not information. Intimacy is what they ask him for, not information. And we don't get that as Westerners. How many of your Bibles say it was the 10th hour? Does anybody's Bible say that or have heard it was the 10th hour? The 10th hour is an incredibly valuable nugget that points us to a greater understanding. Here's the nugget. The Jewish day began uh, on the evening before, but you started the work day at 6 a.m. So hour one is 6 a.m., like several of the non-college kids in this room right now. 6 a.m. is a normal time to start, college kids. Spoiler alert. It's coming. I see you, Davey West. And so here's what happens from there. The 10th hour would not be 6 a.m. It would be 4 p.m., which is the close of the workday. At 4 p.m., you go to dinner. At 4 p.m., you go to wherever you're staying tonight. It's a hospitality culture. And so when the disciples say this, where are you staying? They're asking if they can spend not just the afternoon with Jesus. They're not just saying, can we eat dinner with you? King Jesus, they're saying, can we spend the night with you, Jesus? Where are you staying? Because we will travel with you to your home tonight. And then we will sleep. And then we will share a gentle sunrise and a delicious hearty breakfast with you, Jesus. I know it's not awkward. Why? Because these guys want intimacy with Jesus, not information from him. And if you now know that their intention was to spend the night and have two meals and at least 16 hours with Jesus, at the end of verse 40, verse 41 and 42, they sound really different. Read with me. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said And who had followed Jesus? The next morning, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That's the Christ. Here's the goosebump moment for all of you. Andrew did not have an easy believism. He did not hear John the Baptist say, that's the Lamb of God. And he said, what do you want? Where are you staying? Okay, Peter, come back. We found him. Which is how I've always thought of this story. Which is how, honestly, I've always been taught this story. That's not what this story says. This story says John the Baptist lived in the wilderness preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Then John the Baptist spent six weeks in silence from Jesus the Messiah with his disciples. So that way, when he saw Jesus day one, he said, the sin problem is taken care of. Second day, look, the Lamb of God. At that point, two guys follow Jesus. Everybody tracking? 
And now all of a sudden, the object of their study, Jesus, turns and look at them in the face, and they have to say, what do we want? From the one that we've learned about for years or months or weeks at least, to now he's asking us questions. We want intimacy with him. We want to know. And so Jesus says, let's do it. And so then the story progresses forward. And the next morning, gentle sunrise, great breakfast. And now what happens? They have spent 16 hours with the Messiah. That's the Christ. And so at the end of breakfast, Andrew's like, Peter, we have found him. Guys, this is not easy believism. And so this is the story that we must know intimately and be able to tell because believe your Bible, that doesn't work for today's growing culture, which is growing further and further from Christ. We have to have this intimate language in order to make it mean something for someone. I'm preaching now. All right, I'm sweating. Like a TV preacher, I'm like, I love it. Let's answer one more question before we get out of here. And that's, who's the faceless person? Andrew and the other disciple. Most Bible historians will tell you that this is the writer, John. Third context, two Johns. Context number three, the other disciple, most Bible historians believe, is John the writer of the book of John. And he never names himself throughout the entire book. But that totally fits the model of what true, authentic love looks like. It willingly defers status. Just like Jesus, as a sacrificial lamb, giving up his life to death on a cross. Just like John the Baptist, willingly giving up being the star of the show by pointing to Jesus to say, that's him and losing his disciples. Andrew, for the rest of the gospels, will be forever known as Peter's brother. Andrew defers his status for the rest of life. And why in the world would I believe anything that my brother said? I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Guys, if you have ever lived in the shadow of another, be it a sibling, be it a colleague, Whatever that looks like, you need to know that you're not faceless to God who has created you and who knows you and who loves you and has given himself sacrificially for you. And at the same time, you must know how to point to someone who can redeem and restore and make someone whole, but not in a self-help way, to the cross of Christ. This reaction of Andrew to grab his brother and say, we have found him after intimate time with Christ is why Peter will. It's not easy believism. It is time and intimacy with Jesus that he now brings with him. And that's the secret of the spread of Christianity in the first early centuries. And guys, it's the most effective way that you and I spread the hope and restoration of Jesus in our culture today. Amen.